We turn in the scriptures to the Old Testament, the book of Psalms, Psalm 122. Psalm 122. It has a title to it, A Song of the Sense of David. Psalm 122. I was glad when they said unto me, Let us go into the house of the Lord. Our feet shall be standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built as a city that is compact together, where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to the testimony of Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. For thrones are set there for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. Peace be within your walls and prosperity within your palaces. For the sake of my brethren and companions, I will now say, Peace be within you. Because of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. This is the song of a person who decides to go to worship. So it is applicable to everyone here. It is about Jerusalem, the holy city, the focus of Israel's life and worship. And for us, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is that Jerusalem. This is the third in a series of spiritual songs that is part of the Psalter. They are pilgrim songs and they're designated songs of ascent. It begins with Psalm 120. The author speaks of a determination to set out with God's people. He says, Woe is me that I sojourn in Misham that I dwell in the tents of Kedar. In the next psalm, Psalm 121, he tells of the dangers of the journey and of the Lord's protection as he goes. You will not allow your foot to be moved. The Lord shall preserve you from all evil. And so this psalmist decides to set out, and now he travels. At last, perhaps after many weary miles and dangers and difficulties and exhaustions, he has arrived. He has a tremendous feeling of exaltation and says, Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. His dream has come true. We imagine him standing within the gates of Jerusalem, spellbound, overwhelmed with happiness. He has arrived. We guess that all of his life he has worshipped, perhaps in his own house or in a local synagogue. But here, at last, he is in Jerusalem. We sense in this man a deep, bubbling delight springing up. I was glad. When they said unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet shall be standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. This is something wonderful. 
this psalm describes the experience of the worshiper. The psalm is composed of three paragraphs. The first, verses 1 and 2, bring forth pleasure for the presence in Zion, in Jerusalem. The second paragraph, verses 3 through 5, praise for the privileges of Jerusalem. In the third paragraph, verses 6 through 9, prayer for the peace of Jerusalem. Praise for the presence in Jerusalem. In the first paragraph, verses 1 and 2, we see praise for the presence in Jerusalem. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. We may imagine the author as a Jewish villager. He lives far away in the country region of Israel in some, some village or hamlet. He's had a hard, monotonous life. Nothing very exciting has happened. Another suitable description is an exile Israelite in far-off land. In either case, the invitation comes to the individual, let us go to the house of the Lord. That call to join in the pilgrimage to Jerusalem fills him with excitement and enthusiasm. He is thrilled to hear this call. He is excited to learn that a group of people intend to travel to Jerusalem for worship. He is thrilled that they have invited him to join them. Our journeys to Jerusalem are not so long or as testing as this pilgrim. At worst, we face failed batteries or traffic congestion or ice on the roads. We go far more often than the three annual festivals of the Hebrews. Yet we should experience the same pleasure and greater pleasure each Lord's Day. When we come to Jerusalem with a far more fuller revelation and far greater blessings, are you glad to be in this assembly of the Lord? Do you wake up on a Sunday morning with a sense of joy and happiness? Do you remind yourself, this is the Lord's day. I am going to gather with the people of God. Do you feel joy when you come to worship? Coming to worship is not a routine or a duty. It is something that you feel close and gladly anticipate. You are coming to a place of blessing. How often has God met with you in worship? How often has he drawn near to you and perhaps changed you? How often has he taught you something and strengthened you? Some have been saved in a worship service. The writer to the Hebrews says that we gather for worship, writing in Hebrews 12 verses 22 through 24, but you have come to Mount Zion the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly, the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. The famous football coach, 
sometimes tried to get the crowd enthused before a game by coming out to the center of the stadium and asking the people, where would you rather be? Similarly, I ask you, where would you rather be? Here is the Jerusalem of God. Listen to the translation of the Psalms of David in Meter. I joyed when to the house of God go up, they said to me, Jerusalem within thy gates, our feet shall standing be. We should impress that joy upon our children. Going to church on the Lord's Day is a great and a happy event. We should show it on our faces. We should communicate it to our friends. This is the climax of our new week. This is what we look forward to above all else. There is a tremendous stress in our day on personal devotions. It is valuable to meet with our Lord and Savior. In addition, it is valuable to meet with the corporate gathering of believers. And previous generations understood that corporate worship is superior to private worship. David Clarkson, an English Puritan, wrote in his sermon titled, Public Worship to be Preferred Before Private. Quote, Here is the sweetest enjoyment of God. Here is the clearest discoveries of his glories, the powerful working of the Spirit, the precious blood of Christ in all of its force and efficacy, exceeding comforts, soul influences and refreshments. These are glorious things that are spoken of public worship. Get the high esteem of these, and public worship will be highly valued. Be glad of all the opportunities to worship God in public. Let it be your meat and drink to be thus employed. Go as unto a feast. Sit down under the shadows with great delight, while the fruits of the ordinances, shadows of heavenly enjoyment, are sweet. End quote. What a magnificent description of what we are doing now. I was glad when they said unto me, Let us go to the house of the Lord. Pleasure in the presence in Jerusalem. Praise for the privileges of Jerusalem. The second paragraph, verses 5 through, verses 3 through 5, speak of praise for the privileges of Israel. Why did the worshiper rejoice? Why was he glad? Because he stood at the gates and looked around and became aware of what a privilege it was to be at Jerusalem. In these verses, three things that are excellent are recorded. In verse 3, the city is permanent and solid. In verse 4, the worshippers are diverse yet united. And in verse 5, the king gives direction and judgment. In the first place, the praise for the privileges of, of Jerusalem is that the city is permanent and solid. Jerusalem is built as a city that is compact together. 
Imagine the impact of a city on a country dweller. He may have come from a village of a few homes. He may have never seen a large number of people living together. We have the contrast of little huts that he's accustomed to and the massive structure that are, is before him. It fills him with amazement. There is an overwhelming impression of compactness and strength. The Hebrew word for compact is used in Exodus 26.11 of the tent of worship. God said to Moses, And you shall make fifty bronze clasps, and put clasp into loop, and couple the tent together that it may be one. The word that is used in verse 3 of Psalm 122 is coupled together. It's welded together. It's bound together. It sees the great walls and the palaces and the great houses and the administrative buildings. They are packed together. There are no empty spaces. One commentator writes, Here is an architectural metaphor of a united, impregnable people. The impression is overwhelming of something powerful, mighty, majestic, solid, and permanent. It is magnificent. As the Israelite villager looks at it, a rush of pride arises within him. This is my city. I belong here. As Psalm 48 verse 2 says, Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north the city of the great king. What a privilege to belong to such a place. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is not something small, mean, shabby, or trivial. Sometimes we may feel that when we look at our own congregation. You may be overwhelmed with a sense of smallness and weakness when you look at our present circumstances. But the church of Christ is a mighty permanent structure. It is the church. It is the city of God. It is built on Jesus Christ, the rock of our salvation. It is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. They are massive building stones. It is composed of strong walls, of living stones, men and women renewed by the Spirit of God. It is not a shanty town. It is not a temporary dwelling in which a few travelers have camped for the night. It is not a scattered suburban development. It is compact and huge. Think of flying over New York City with its mighty buildings. It is important that we regard the church as something majestic. Do not allow yourself to be pushed to the fringes. Do not develop a sectarian mentality. Do not think of yourself as part of an insignificant little group. We do not date ourselves from the Reformation. We have an historic stability that goes back to biblical times. We are part of the one holy, apostolic, and universal church. We are part of the Jerusalem that has existed throughout the centuries in the Old Testament and New Testament, where the people of God compact and built together. 
in one of his last letters, John Knox, before his death, wrote to a Jesuit priest, Jerry Terry, who mocked him about, you are invisible Kirk of Scotland, only eight years old. <laughs> Knox replied, Whensoever the papists and we shall come to reckon the age of our faith, we doubt nothing but that their faith in more points than one or two shall be found very young and but lately invented in respect to all that true faith which this day the Kirks of Scotland is professed. And we say that our Kirk is not a newfound Kirk, but is part of the Holy Kirk universal which is grounded upon the doctrine of the prophets and the apostles, having the same antiquity that the Kirk of the Apostles had. John Knox. In other words, we need to have a sense of our continuity with the best of the church in every age. We must not allow ourselves to be cut off from our history. In October of 1536, a group of Roman Catholic theologians met in Lausanne, Switzerland to debate the principles of the Reformation with three reformers, Pierre Verret, William Farrell, and John Calvin. For three days, Calvin, as a young man, 27 years old at the time, deferred to the others and kept silent. He did not speak a word. Such was his humility and modesty. On the fourth day, one of the Roman Catholic theologians, a man named Mimar, in a speech which he had prepared for months, proclaimed that the Protestants ignored the church fathers because they were anti-Protestant. Calvin stood up and said, Honor to the Holy Church Fathers. He among us who does not know them better than you, let him beware lest he mention their names. Too bad that you are not more thoroughly read in them, otherwise certain references to them would be a benefit to you. And then, with no notes, no time prepared, on the spur of the moment, relying only on his past reading and his memory, John Calvin overwhelmed his opponents with an incredible series of quotations from the fathers. He quoted from Athanasius, Augustine, Basil, Gregory, Chrysostom, and all the others. It was a scene of great excitement. A Franciscan friar, John Tundy, stood up and said, It seems to me that the sin against the Holy Spirit is stubbornness, which rebels against truth. In accordance with what I have just heard, I confess to be guilty. Because of ignorance, I have lived in error and have spread wrong teaching. I ask God's pardon for everything that I have said and done against his honor. And I ask pardon of you all men, of all of you men, for the offense that I have given with my preaching until now. That was the effect 
of John Calvin. Could we do that? Do we realize that these men in Asia Minor and North Africa are our brothers? In their purest and best, we hold the faith that they hold. The great councils of Nicaea, Constantinople, Ephesus, Chalcedon, are all councils of our church and part of our faith. The Puritan writers often brought in the teaching of Augustine. This illustrates the permanence of the church, the history of the church. And you are part of this. The early church fathers could come in here and feel at home. They could say, this is what we also believe. This is the true faith. In the first place, the privilege, the praise for the privilege of Jerusalem is that the city is permanent and solid. In the second place, the praise for the privilege of Jerusalem is that the worshipers are diverse, yet united. Verse 4, where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, the testimony of Israel, to give thanks unto the Lord. This man had, not, had only known his own family, his own neighbors, members of his own tribe. He had been brought up, perhaps, in a restricted and narrow environment. He comes to Jerusalem and he looks around and he sees people he has never seen before. He sees coastal dwellers and fishermen from the tribe of Zebulon and rough highlanders from the tribe of Dan. There were farmers and shepherds from Ephraim and desert Bedouin from Simeon and Reuben. There were people with strange accents, different colors of skin, unfamiliar clothing, and unusual cultural practices. He realizes we are all one. We are all brothers. My family is far greater than I imagined. All the tribes go up to Jerusalem. Many families and many tribes come to the same place in obedience to the same testimony to Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. He discovered an awareness of belonging to a great white family, diverse yet united. Church growth experts tell us that the best way to grow a congregation is to build it of people who are almost identical. The same status in life, same heritage, same values, a homogeneous church. However, because of the work of the Holy Spirit, we may rejoice in our diversity in location, vocation, and perspective. The church has a fundamental unity over the centuries, the continents, and the communities. We are all adopted children by the same father. We are a worldwide family gathered for one purpose, through one Savior, worshiping one God by one Spirit. We are enriched by our differences, not damaged by them. As Psalm 133 verse 1 says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. 
When this man came from his isolated dwellings, he looked around at all the tribes. He thought, how wonderful to be part of this body. Isn't it true that when you come to the great and important things, then that which makes us differ loses its importance? Denominations fade into the background when we realize that we are one in Christ Jesus. In the second place, the praise for the privileges of Jerusalem is that the worshipers are diverse yet united. In the third place, the praise for the privileges of Jerusalem is that the king gives direction and guidance. Verse 5. For thrones are set for judgment, thrones of the house of David. Perhaps it was hard for this poet to obtain justice in his country community. Perhaps the local landlord oppressed the people. Perhaps there was no one in the village who really knew the law. Perhaps no one had the power to enforce it. His whole life may have been filled with irritants, injustices, grievances, and uncertainties. Now he has reached Jerusalem. Now he says, thrones are set there for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. Here is the place of authority. Here is the place of the mighty word of God. Here is the place of truth. Here is the place where Moses said that the hard cases were to be heard so that the judges could administer justice. Here is the place of kingly authority. The monarch was here to determine decisions, to settle quarrels, and to provide guidance. He was responsible not only to decree, but also to enforce. Here is the place that God's word should be heard clearly, authoritatively, and unambiguously. The worshippers would come from their environment of corruption, injustice, and lies. When they came to Jerusalem, they would see the thrones of judgment. Here is the things that could be straightened out. In every place of worship that is influenced by reform thinking, you will find central to the architectural design the pulpit. Wherever you sit, you're looking toward the pulpit. The center of attention is not an altar or a communion table or a baptismal font. It is the pulpit where God's word is central in this place. You are not just coming for fellowship or for education or for evangelism. You come to hear the word of God, the mighty declaration of the King of Kings. You come to hear God's word of doctrine, of reproof, of correction, of instruction. His word of love and forgiveness, of grace, of mercy, of peace. You are coming to a place to place yourselves under the word of God. Thrones of judgment are set here. Not to share, not to discuss or to debate, but to listen, to learn, to believe and to obey. In a world of lies, fantasies and deceptions, here is the place where you can meet the clean, clear, convicting word of God. You may come each week with your families and receive definite answers and unshakable certainties, not guesses or opinions. When you come here, you will hear something that is everlastingly true. 
Here all the evasions and uncleannesses of the world are swept away. Here we are afresh by what God says. Each week we come to readjust our lives to God's word. These are great privileges. The city is permanent and solid. The worshippers are diverse yet united. The king gives direction and justice. The second paragraph is about praise for the privileges of Jerusalem. Prayer for the peace of Jerusalem. The third paragraph, verses 6 through 9, is prayer for the peace of Jerusalem. The poet prays, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. In his heart he stands at the gates of the city, looks around and thinks of what this city means. There springs up in him a fierce, strong desire for the prosperity and well-being of the holy city. He feels protected. He feels possession. This is my city. The psalmist in Psalm 137 said the same thing. In verses six through, 5 through 6, he says, If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. If I do not remember you, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I do not exalt Jerusalem above all my chief joy. He loves this city. He is so thankful to be permitted by the grace of God to be within the walls of Jerusalem. His whole heart goes out for peace. Verse 6 says, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. May she live up to her name, Jerusalem, the city of peace. We wonder if Christ was thinking of this passage when he wept over the city. Luke 19 verses 41 and 42 records, Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Jesus prays for the peace of Jerusalem. Notice how he prays for it. If we would pray for our country, it would be that no external enemies would arrive and invade us. The psalmist prayer is different. There is never going to be peace on earth while the church exists. We are the church militant. Paul writes in Ephesians 6 verse 12, where we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. We fight against the forces of darkness. There is never going to be peace from the outside. There is one word in this paragraph that he repeats three times. The word within. Verses six, verses seven and eight. Peace be within your walls. Prosperity within your palaces. He is not praying for peace with the world. That would be a disaster for the church. The worst news you could ever hear is that the church is at peace with the world. Rather, he prays, 
for peace within your walls, prosperity within your palaces, peace within you. He wants peace inside the church. He prays for peace among the membership. His desire is for no division, no disunity, no strife among the citizens. He does not want the morale of the people weakened. He prays that God will grant us peace within. This prayer is not just a personal intercession. He calls others to join him when he says, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. He can imagine no greater disaster than the destruction of the city. Likewise, we should pray earnestly, passionately for the peace of Jerusalem, the church. This is necessary for there are many enemies and many dangers. It is a very great blessing for the church to be at peace. He says, for the sake of my brethren and companions, I will say, peace be within you. That is true in a general sense. There is no greater benefit for the human race than a strong, vibrant, and prosperous church. For the sake of the community, for the sake of this state, for the sake of the nation, pray for Jerusalem. That is the way we will be blessed. If we love our nation, if we love our fellow human beings, if we love our children, then we will pray for the peace of Jerusalem. This is true in a more specific sense. He prays for the whole of Jerusalem, for the whole of the church throughout the world. This warns us against narrowness and denominationalism. As the psalmist says, may they prosper who love you. They may not be of my tribe. I may have not met them before. I may not see everything the same way. But if they love you, O Lord, may they prosper. This is a generous Catholicity in our hearts. <coughs> Never be jealous when you hear of other believers prospering. There is a deep longing in verse 9 because of the house of the Lord our God. This is central to the believer's prayer, which is for God's glory. We may never, we are never to value the church for its own sake or even for our sake, rather because the church belongs to God, the church is Christ's body. Our prayer is that she may be known and may be obeyed, that he may be obeyed. Paul wrote in Ephesians 3 verse 10, and now the manifold wisdom of God might be known among you by the church. This is to be your motivation as you pray for the church. Are you praying for the sake of the house of the Lord our God? Prayer for the peace of Jerusalem is important, but it is not enough. The psalmist ends with a practical exhortation, a searching challenge. I will seek your good. It ends with this man committing himself to the church. He purposes not only to pray for the church, but also to live, to work, even suffer for the church. Charles Spurgeon says, first we love him, then we labor for him. 
First we see its good, then we seek its good. If the first is real, it will lead to the second. Here's the test of worship. Not a gush of emotion, but a solemn commitment. I will seek your good. I will set aside my own needs and comforts. I will seek the good of Jerusalem. I'll do it for the sake of my brothers and companions. I'll do it for the sake of the house of the Lord our God. Too often we forget what we are supposed to be doing. This psalm reminds us that we are to rejoice in belonging to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here is God's call for us to seek the prosperity of Jerusalem. Once an old Irishman called Columba, who lived in the 6th century, traveled to Scotland with the gospel. Here is one of Columba's prayers, which he may have referred to the thought of Psalm 84, verse 10, which says, For a day in your courts are better than a thousand. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. Columba prayed, quote, Almighty God and Father and Holy Ghost, let me be, let me the least of sins allow that I may keep a door in paradise, that I may keep even the smallest door, the farthest door, the darkest, the coldest door, the door that is least used, the stiffest and meanest door, if so be but thine, in thine house, O Lord, if so be that I may see thy glory and know that I may be with thee, O Lord God. <coughs> I would rather keep a door in the house of the Lord. End quote. Before you speak or ask or act, ask yourself, is this for the good of Jerusalem? We look forward to the day when you and I will be able to sing this song in a fuller meaning, recorded in Revelation 21, verses 2 and 3. When we shall see the holy city, New Jerusalem, come down out of heaven from God. <clears throat> and when I heard the voice of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. And they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. I was glad when they said unto me, Let us go to the house of the Lord. Pleasure for the presence in Jerusalem. Praise for the privilege of Jerusalem. Prayer for the peace of Jerusalem is the content of the pilgrim song. Are you glad to come to worship? Do you have the pilgrim's joy? That was great. Our gracious God, we praise you for drawing us to an unfamiliar setting that we might have a more conscious awareness that we come to worship you. And the wonder is that you meet your people wherever they gather together. For there the Lord Jesus Christ has promised to be in the midst of them, interceding for them, mediating for them, 
protecting them and providing for them. We've thought, Lord God, about going to worship and have been stimulated to think about how joyful it is to gather before the Lord with righteousness that is not our own, but righteousness that has been secured by Jesus Christ. May our actions and attitudes be apparent to those who are younger than us, that we rejoice to come and worship the Lord, for he is worthy to be praised. Make us steadfast and unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, as we look forward to that new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, where in the fullness God will dwell among his people, and we will be with God in fullness. We thank you for the joy of the pilgrim. We ask that it might mark us. In Jesus' name, amen.